Welcome to 1966. Ryan, how's it going? It's going great. Good good year to be a Beatles fan, 1966, I'll tell you that. It really is. So what we got this year is Revolver and Aftermath. Um, and in, in something to acknowledge right up front is that Aftermath has two versions with some kind of kind of big variations between the two. And then Revolver is the same in both places, right? Yeah, and I think we realized that you had been listening to the UK version of Aftermath more and I had been listening to the US version, which I don't know if I'd say there's big differences. There's some important songs that are, you know, uh, Paint It Black is on the, the US version, which as we noted in our first episode is the number one played song by the Rolling Stones on Spotify. So that's a pretty big inclusion, but most of the album, 80 to 90% of them are the same, is the same. Yeah, the, the meat of the two albums are the same, but how, like Painted Black being different and then the, the British one having Out of Time, those are big. I know Out of Time is a is a big uh, Justin and Ryan favorite. So. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know, I don't know how popular that song is, although obviously it's popular with Quentin Tarantino since he put it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, Mother's Little Helper is also not on the U.S. version, um, and I feel like that's a pretty quintessential Stone song in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so I, there, there've been various rankings over, over the years and I, like, you're not going to find aftermath high up on like where, where like placing Rolling Stone albums, but you are going to find revolver up there. Revolver, I think is a beloved album. That's maybe even like become more beloved with time. Is that what you say? I want, I want to get your opinion on this. Um, I, I definitely think revolver is one of the greatest albums of all time. I think it's um, in the contention for the best Beatles album of their whole catalog. And I definitely think it's way better than Aftermath um, as a full picture um, as far as this year's go. But having said all that, I still feel like there's some kind of like street cred. I just don't, I don't think it's the best album of all time. And I think anyone who's putting it as the best album is doing it to be, in in my opinion, some ways contrarian. I don't I don't feel like it's it's that. Yeah, it has it has the stink of like uh okay, talk about Sgt. Pepper and and all these all you want. Revolver's the actual best one. Exactly. Yeah. And and I can't there's no way I could rank any album as the greatest album of all time that has fucking yellow submarine on it. <laughs> okay well here i want to i'm gonna i'm gonna come out come out the gate i'm representing the rolling stones this year for the first time and you are representing the beatles which is a fun little uh i mean that's the name of the game with this podcast right that indeed so i listened to the uk version with start which starts with mother's little helper this argument actually still stands just as strong with uh if you make it paint it black but if, if I'd say the opening track of an album kind of announces like it kind of announces what you got coming and Mother's Little Helper starts with what a drag it is getting old. What a drag it is getting old. Very, very beautifully delivered, like no introductory chords or anything. Just right out the gate. You get that. Then you get the little sitar and then. You, this this song plays out from there, which is basically about like uh, 60s house mom, like popping quaaludes just so that she can tolerate life with her like lunk headed husband who's just like watching TV and waiting for dinner to be served. And th- all those details I just mentioned and just the general like feel and vibe and and coolness of, of that song compared to Taxman, which is basically <laughs> like the most cliched 
explain to me your this liber this uh, libertarian answer. Is it cliche? Is it cliche? Okay, I'll, I'll agree with you that it's maybe in, in my experience with this record and in my many times listening to it, I don't know that it's like the strongest, like kick the doors down. Although it does have a certain something, but you have to give it credit. This has got to be the most successful like conservative libertarian ideology ideology like snuck into a pop song by like uh you know massively popular band can you think what what other band as this famous has a song that is so um anti-government but not in in like a sort of anarchistic way i think just the gall of that song is amazing I think that they basically said like, okay, Harrison, we'll let you have an opening track. We'll break it off. Go ahead. Run Taxman. And then, and then uh, that can be like a, a preface to Eleanor Rigby when this album really announces itself. I mean... I'm not going to purport to understand or know about either the politics, certainly not the tax policies of like 1960s UK, but was it really that bad, George Harrison? Is, is, this, is this not something of an exaggeration? I think you guys did okay. Really? You're going to complain <laughs> you, about your taxes? Would you say that George Harrison played fast and loose with his uh, I-9s and uh, W-2s and stuff? I think that's probably a safe assumption, but you have that there is some... I think, despite all that, there are some very witty lyrics in that song, but it's certainly a very cool, understated way to sort of start this album. Um, understated, understated is uh, <laughs> I can I could swap in some other words for for Let's see, what like what uh, lame, <laughs> boring. <laughs> um, ba- ba- all right, Taxman's fine. It's fine, but like Mother's Little Helper is so legit it's so good and it kind of brings me to a certain time and like these bands are are aging into like they're not they're not children anymore these are basically kids when they start life's just much too hard today i hear every mother say the pursuit of happiness just seems a bore and if you take more of those you will get and then you release a different version of this in the u.s and it has painted black um just an absolute beast of a song. I won't. I won't disagree with your assessment, but I will say that in in the world of like my frame of mind, Mother's Little Helper to me is such a fucking depressing song. Like even more than Paint It Black, that like I'd much rather be in a world where I'm like imagining myself as like an uber wealthy British person who's like complaining about the man t- taking the pennies off my eyes. Um, that. <laughs> Uh, I think that really that flows right into my next question or really my first question for you um, regarding Revolver, which is this, Justin, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? Uh, Bro, the Beatles are your account on this year. You tell me where they all come from. I'm telling you, this is another we're going to notate this every time this comes up on these albums. A perfect example of a lyric that Paul McCartney can write, and it's a timeless classic. And if you tried to write that shit, you would be laughed out of your open mic night. Yeah, isolate that lyric and just like judge it on its own. And it's, uh, all right, this gives me nothing. But 
Paul McCartney does it and tuck it into Eleanor Rigby. You're, you're not going to find a single second of uh, Eleanor Rigby criticism from me on this. El- Eleanor Rigby is easily one of my favorite Beatles songs. Father McKenzie, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved all alone. It is not that for me. And I love Revolver as a package, as a whole, as, as you know, the original concept album in a way there's going to be a lot of people like what do you mean you don't like Eleanor Rigby I that's just one of those sad bastard songs that the Beatles and Paul McCartney specialized in that anytime that comes on I'm just like skip see not me that to me that to me is uh all these conversations we had in the early years where you kind of get from these these um two and a half minute pop songs to songs like Norwegian Wood and Eleanor Rigby that's like they're getting experimental already on on Rubber Soul and Revolver, but they're about to like very outwardly do that on Sgt. Pepper's and White Album. Like it's going to get actively oh, yeah. like these are weird albums. Like we're trying to basically make weird albums and they they do it and they make good weird albums. But songs like Norwegian Wood and Eleanor Rigby are just like they've shifted away from this other thing they were doing, but they're not in this part where they're they're kind of presenting themselves as that yet. It's just just interesting creative music. I, I just to me that the juxtaposition this year between these two bands is that Revolver is a great album and Aftermath has some great songs on it, some timeless songs, towering hits. Um, but as an album, as a whole, both versions have more filler in it than a fucking Instagram influencer's lips. Like it is like some solid gold gems and a bunch of polished crap. We, we had talked about in the 1964 episode, sort of like, oh yeah, the Beatles, maybe this al- these albums are better, but I-, I would rather just throw this Rolling Stones record on. And I do not feel that way about this year. I'd much rather just throw Revolver on. Um, I-, I would listen to those songs from Aftermath. I would listen to Mother's Little Helper. I would listen to Paint It Black um, under my thumb. This this album is so weird and disjointed. Yeah, I see. I see a little bit of that. But you have your feelings about Revolver, and we're gonna have this conversation about Revolver. I like Revolver too, but this is another like transparent in the direction of my argument kind of thing. Sure. Revolver has been built up into a thing that's more than what Revolver actually is, and Aftermath doesn't have that burden of like no one's no one's trying to say Aftermath is like the best album of all time. It's it's just. It's an album. I think I think this really is besides satisfaction on the previous one and get off my cloud when they're kind of getting going. Aftermath feels to me like really when the Rolling Stones be, are becoming the Rolling Stones that they're about to be. Yeah, it's not a it's not an immaculate side A and side B. Um, well, well, I want to be honest about this, and I know that I've been um, I won't say dishonest, but at times disingenuous in some of my arguments that I've made <laughs> in order to get my point across. But I'm I'm going to be completely honest here, which is that. I still think the Beatles had a better year. I think it's still like one of the one of the greatest albums of all time. But in my mind, when we were drafting this and, and even, you know, in my sort of Beatles fandom, I've always had this sort of picture of like, yeah, Revolver, that's my favorite Beatles album. I, I love that album, blah, blah, blah. And then going through and going year by year uh, and in this process, I was I kind of was like, I think I like Rubber Soul better. 100% had that same feeling. I do like Rubber Soul better, and I, I think, think I, I think I kind of had them in a tie. But I, again, it made me think about that sort of just weird, you know, 
some kind of street cred that comes with like name dropping revolver and maybe maybe my whole life i've not my whole life but as an adult i've like played into that and it's like this is the cool choice you're not saying something cheesy or or you know obvious like revolver is sort of the thinking man's beatles album and uh, there's I still think it's a, a really great album it's timeless um but I think maybe it's getting older I don't know what it is but I just after after going back to back and really really spending time with these albums I think revolvers or uh, rubber soul is better but you you said something on one of the last episodes like this why people have kind of like have a love for this kind of mid-career period and um they, they feel there's a reason we're talking about the two of them together right mm-hmm like, they feel like they're a part of a little moment for them. It's almost like a double album. Yeah. And I think they were recorded really close to closely together in time. And like you said, they're in the, it's the middle period because they are still, they're still all writing songs together. They still have this sort of commitment to the three minute, two and a half minute pop song. Um, even if they are kind of more weird and experimental and playing with different forms A revolver, the longest song on there is to, Love You Too and Tomorrow Never Knows are three minutes each flat. There's not a song longer than three minutes on there. Versus Aftermath, <laughs> you get this stinker of going home, which is just so long. You got to chop, they got to chop that one off. I agree. But I have another, this is a legitimate question, not a silly question is this album is sort of famous for being like, oh, the Beatles started taking psychedelic drugs and this inspired all these people. And this album is, you know, not probably as much as Sgt. Pepper, but it does have a sort of reputation as like uh, a druggy album or even Rubber Soul sort of starts that off. And, you know, the picture on the cover is looks kind of psychedelic or whatever. Um, and I've done my share of mind altering substances in my day. I would never put Revolver on while I was on those substances. Tell me more about that. How come? Um, for me personally, maybe it was groundbreaking at the time. And if you take an acid for the first time, it was like, this is amazing. And maybe it's like the, the Seinfeld isn't funny effect where so many people were inspired by this stuff and just like ended up doing it better. But um, I, I just, it just doesn't work. The songwriting's great. The riffs and the hooks and the craftsmanship is great as like a listen to this while you're super high album doesn't work for me. Yeah, I can see that. Something that, because we've done a few of these episodes that I feel like I want to get out ahead of is uh, the Rolling Stones song, Stupid Girl. Oh my God. I, feel, I, I, I think that you have the uh, tactical ability and belief in, in Revolver to just have this whole entire conversation by arguing Revolver on its merits and not have to like take it into the gutter of, uh, of uh, a nasty little debate tactic of like, calling out these songs but stupid girl is pretty rough stupid girl is indefensible obviously i've known that song forever just from listening to this album and i've never really paid i've always been like that's kind of uh you know whatever i've never really listened to the words i always just assumed there was some kind of ironic pose involved there no exactly what it says it is the, pro- the problem with stupid girl the problem with stupid girl which i'll come around and and um 
enlighten you on in a second, but it's it's not a good enough sounding song to justify what it's saying. But all right, so track one is Mother's Little Helper, and you get this sort of, you, you get a peek into this household where there's this dude who's just like, he's kind of your typical like 50s looking dad. He's an older guy now. The kids are getting all into like hippie shit. And uh, this guy's there. This just fucking like, hippie shit. This yeah. fucking Beatles album. Yeah, exactly. He's just and and he's just like, yo, get my get my food on the table, and uh, like, if you gotta if you gotta pop a couple of quaaludes to like get through your day, do what you gotta do. Track two is Stupid Girl. Maybe Stupid Girl. What I came to realize is like maybe the Rolling Stones are a couple of thoughts ahead of us on this, and maybe Aftermath is a more co- cohesive album than we think, and Stupid Girl is from the perspective of that guy that bad husband that is very generous interpretation i don't feel the need to to really hammer in on stupid girl because our guest on this episode um pretty much summed it up which is that he will not let his daughter listen to that song when he he's a massive rolling stones fan and uh refuses to let his five-year-old daughter listen to that song and i think that pretty much he he equated the song stupid girl to to like a, a rated m rap song um i think that's probably that's probably appropriate yeah i think it's it's an indefensible song unless you get uh unless you decide like who who what perspective is he singing from because he's saying nothing enlightening or thoughtful at all i think this is this is a song from the perspective of a dumb idiot the whole idea of mother's little helper you know is that it's like this older housewife who's like getting on in age and she's like drinking a bottle of wine or whatever. What do you think that guy would refer to her as a girl? I'm just trying to justify the song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, the other, the other song on aftermath that to me, I don't know why it's just particularly stupid to me is the song. It's not easy. It's in this, the, the whole song is like two lyrics and it's just, it's not easy living on your own. Thanks guys. That's really enlightening. <laughs> I think that they, they they previously were in a period of like we need some more songs, and you don't need it's not easy. It, I think it's a fi- it's got a fine vibe to it and everything, but yeah, it's it's a well, it's just a different mindset and mentality. And I don't know. I think it was just like let's let's get some shit to release. Let's not necessarily thinking this will be in a vault one day. This will this will be in a museum you know, like some of these records that are coming up that are just, these are masterpieces. It was just like, what do we got? In my mind, I can visualize that uh, songwriting process, which is like, they're playing a riff. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. And makes like, it's not easy. And it's like, oh yeah, got something there. And then it's like, what's not easy? Um, living on your own. And then you, you keep trying to like find other words that fit. And it's just like, oh, Nope, this is the song. They're just, yeah, they're just in the pocket and grooving and they don't need uh, words to get in the way of that. Yeah, I also wonder uh, with Paint It Black, um, which is obviously a Pantheon song, um, not not specifically mentioning Pantheon podcast, who um, such a gracious uh, host of this podcast, but it's is, is one of the all-time songs. But I, I listening to a lot, I was I always laugh when there's a song that the vocal line is exactly the same as the guitar line. The thing is that line is so sick. It is. It's so sick. Like you get that, you better 
pounded into the ground. It's so good. What the just the imagery of that song. I don't know. It says like a thousand things. Like I see a red door and I want to paint it black. I don't know what that means. I don't know what Mick was referring to specifically, but I certainly that is like a very um, stretchy metaphor, and it can mean so many different things to you depending on where you're at when you're listening to it. So, something that's like I have no idea how I missed this, and I swear to God I did not like pick up on this until this week. Is that it has it that it's painted comma black. I did not know that it's if in every place that i look now it's painted comma black that changes meaning that changes the way you would say it that escaped me entirely probably because these were songs that i was like downloading on napster from my uh dorm room in in college i'm gonna be honest with you that escaped me until you just pointed it out so now i have to spend another three hours listening to that song I think there are certain songs that just don't sound like any other song. Like maybe the song structure or the chord progressions, it's like, yeah, there's this. To me, Under My Thumb is just such a unique signature, just like fingerprint of a song. Like everything about it, the marimbas, the mix singing, like e even other Rolling Stones songs, like it's just like on this other thing over here by itself and i love it i love that song it rules that song really rules little little it, it goes in some interesting lyric directions too it's basically like uh hey girl you used to have me uh under a little bit of control in this sort of lusty relationship well now i got you under my thumb and you basically answer to me now some real some real a little bit of a fucked up power dynamic song it but. is a fucked up power dynamic but it's also like especially at this point in time but even since then like one of you that's just like an original idea for a song even despite the like misogynistic undertones it's still like okay that's an interesting take on like a relationship song it's not yeah. that's different from love me do Under my thumb, the girl who Yeah, so this aftermath is such a weird thing because uh, on some of these, you know, four or five songs, uh, if you throw in 19th Nervous Breakdown, which was a single this year, which is also one of my favorite songs, you, you could say like the Rolling Stones have fully arrived. They are putting out songs that will, you know, are amongst their greatest, amongst the greatest songs that anyone ever written. Why why is the rest of this stuff such crap? I, I think the Beatles are capable of making these songs that you're kind of like, especially in these earlier periods, like, oh, this song's not for me. You know, like this is, they made this, maybe it's for someone, that person isn't me. I tend to feel like the Rolling Stones ones that aren't the jump out ones, like Under My Thumb kicks complete ass. It's so good. Um, it's kind of one of the best versions of the Rolling Stones you'll ever get. Mm. But but the ones that don't rise to that level, and I even mean like, it's not easy and stuff like that. They just settle into a groove and they don't try to be anything more. Like I, I, I can't find ways to hate them. They just, I just don't find ways to like necessarily love them. They're just like connected. Yeah, they're not grading from one hit to another. When I hear Dr. Robert, I say two thumbs down, John Lennon. You know, but that's, that's the thing about the Beatles. And the, I mean, Eleanor Rigby, we talked about earlier is a perfect example. I'm not going to sit here and say, and challenge the sort of greatness of that song. It's just not for me. It just doesn't 
I just don't like it. But, you know, a song like Yellow Submarine, which is such a punchline, right? Like that's such a certain example of a certain type of artistic, I don't know, arrogance, or I don't know what you'd call that. It's still, you, you still probably could sing it in your head right now. Um, and I guess that's maybe the difference. Even the, even the misses or the songs I don't like on Revolver are like utterly memorable. It always feels like the Beatles are like the better students, the more studious people, the like every single thing is fully thought out, but maybe you like it, maybe you won't like it. And, and they got four members writing songs and singing songs. And so there's gonna be people who gravitate toward different kind of stuff. Whereas the Rolling Stones almost feel like, all right, we got five absolute smashing hits here. Keith, <laughs> do some riffs. I'm gonna shimmy and just kind of pop off over it. And uh, now we'll have an album. They got, they have this skill set, and they can just kind of groove to to pad it out. All right, I'm here with Nate Wilcox um, from the Let It Roll podcast, and Nate, I'm going to to ask you one simple question: In 1966, Beatles versus Stones, who you got? This is like cutting off my arm, or like Brian Jones did going through it, throwing a punch at somebody you shouldn't have been punching and breaking my hand on the, on a steel screen. Um, these are absolutely my two favorite bands. I've been a Beatles head since I was three and my big sister would intersperse the blue and red albums with her Jim Croce and bread selections. And I got into the stones, I think in eighth grade when I got sticky fingers, but it didn't take me long to discover I think Philip Norman Stones bio was the first one. And then um, Stanley Booth shortly thereafter. And I got high tide in green grass and got this morbid obsession with Brian Jones and what he did or didn't do with the stones. So this is very, very difficult. And like, wait, can you, can you elaborate a little bit on your morbid obsession? I'm curious. Well, you know, I mean, Brian Jones is like the definition of a rock and roll loser. Like he's gifted and talented, <laughs> beautiful, charismatic, horrible person i mean i think i can't remember which there was a, a great a book and i'm blanking on the author and it's embarrassing but that collected had like a page on every british beat group of the 60s and then the introduction he said and nobody had anything nice to say about poor brian jones oh. <laughs> so um i don't think he was he wasn't a worthless person he wasn't like ted bundy or somebody who had nothing to give back i mean obviously he had great gifts and he shared them with people but absolutely the wrong way to live a life and i so, mean I, I would say for my money the fact that he contributed the marimba on under my thumb means that he's definitely not a worthless person if he gave us nothing else in this life absolutely and you know there's the maximalist case that i advocate that paul trinka and bill wyman have outlined that you know brian jones formed the band he named the band he picked the members he taught them what to play or taught them how to play together picked their early repertoire and was still a driving force as late as, you know, early 67. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, he gave us the Rolling Stones. So thank you. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> you know, the, uh, and uh, yeah, he just, he went down in flames, hurt a lot of people, hurt himself, ruined his reputation. Mick and Keith are still going out of their way to demean and diminish his legacy. And I don't blame them because I think he scarred them for life. Like I, I, from what I can tell, they were pretty normal, decent guys when they started. And uh -huh. Brian was at least a malignant narcissist. So 
you know, they're in the thrall of this slightly older, more experienced musician who's handsome and, and can play anything and knows all the blues songs and is a total dictator. And he's a complete, complete, can I curse? Oh, absolutely. He's a complete asshole and shithead, you know? I mean, so I do not blame them. Um, maybe I blame Mick a little more than Keith, but, but you know, I, I don't blame them for this, but I do feel sort of sad that they still, after all these years, can't let bygones be bygones and give him his due. I like that. I like that uh, term malignant narcissist. I think I'm going to lob out <laughs> my parents the next time. I. <laughs> it's a clinical term. It's, yeah. it's part of the dark triad. I can't remember what the other two are, but um, it's, it's right next to sociopath or borderline personality disorder. In, in the dark trinity so okay so we're we're in 1966 what's what is your take on this this specific year i think vh1 had 100 best rock and roll albums of all time special 20 years ago which is when i turned my brain off but they <laughs> they had you know the the big countdown it was voted on by musicians so it was more credible than most of those things to uh -huh. me at least and they had chuck d of all people introduce the number one album which I thought was cool because if you know anything about Chuck D, I mean uh, the dude is a massive record head, you know, right. like a, a fan of all genres, and he he just had this very succinct introduction for Revolver, which was Beatles' best album, no question, hands down, Revolver, boom, and it's hard to argue with that. Like, obviously, Sgt. Pepper had the massive global impact and changed their image and brought them into the rock era, or at least brought their fans like. Mm -hmm. let everybody know the Beatles were in the rock era, but Revolver, I mean, they were inventing rock music right there and way ahead of their time was something like Tomorrow Never Knows, which was like remixed as a dance hit in the 90s, you know, literally 30 years ahead of their time. Uh -huh. Perfect album. Both John and Paul are, are on all cylinders. George contributes three really solid songs. The band is playing as a unit, working together, perfect masterpiece, plus the paperback writer, Rain single, you know, cutting edge of psychedelia, cutting edge of bass and drum sound, you know, technically a masterpiece. But I think I got to go with the Stones. Whoa, this, I, I didn't know. see that left turn coming. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, this is, like I said, this is like cutting off my left hand. Uh -huh. um, the Stones mean so much to me personally. I think their work is more flawed. Like I think Aftermath could have been as great an album as Pet Sounds or Revolver or Blonde on Blonde, which was the big competition that year. And mm -hmm. I think all of those artists were, were paying very close attention to the Stones. The Stones were paying very close attention to them. You know, the singles coming out of Stax and Motown are comparable and, and the Stones are right there, as were the Beatles and those other groups. But Aftermath, it comes out in two different editions, the English and the American. Neither one is definitive. Um, both have tracks that I think should have been left in the can and both have tracks that were not on it that should have been. Um, if they had put Sitting on a Fence and uh, Ride on Baby on Aftermath, I think it would have been right up there, you know, and pulled Say What to Do. And the fact that this, that going home, this 11 minute jam is... Uh, on there to me to my ears it's just a a, a mar on the record but mm -hmm. at the time by all accounts it was seen as this amazing breakthrough and the longest rock tracks ever put on an album up to that point you know capturing a group improvising and i think what threw me is that the band isn't really doing much interesting 
on the improvising side. Like Brian's playing harmonica, Keith overdubs the second guitar part, but it drops out after the first three minutes of the song. So the rest of the song is Keith on one guitar, Brian on harmonica, the rhythm section playing, but Mick is the one doing all the improvising. And, and once you sort of make that brain adjustment, it's kind of interesting if that's your cup of tea. It's not my cup of tea, mm -hmm. but anyway, I still, it just means too much to me personally. Just I've spent so many hours obsessing over, well, should they have put this track in? Should they have put that track in? Who played what? You know, this is the last album where Brian Jones is a fully functional guitar player. Mm -hmm. And if you really obsessively listen to those tracks with headphones and the alternate mixes and the mono mix, most of the tracks, you know, Keith will say some bullshit about how, oh, Brian was out of it and he wasn't really contributing. That is absolutely bullshit. I mean, not only was he playing marimbas on multiple tracks, sitar on multiple tracks, you know, blues harp, slide guitar, but he's clearly playing rhythm guitar on multiple tracks. Like, you know, according to Bill Wyman, he played the acoustic guitar on Under My Thumb as well as the marimbas. And what it sounds like to me is that they would go in and do a live track with everybody sitting down their instruments. And then Keith and Brian would go back and lay down another guitar track each or a different instrument track. And you can hear it over and over again. If you really obsess on something like Flight 505 or Stupid Girl, there's like four rhythm guitars going. And it's this just, it's nobody's playing anything fancy. That's the thing the Stones never, nobody individually ever plays anything slick or fancy, but they play unique parts that it's really really hard to play two slightly out of sync rhythm guitar parts but both keith and brian could do that they each had their own perfect beat and they locked into it and and it just creates this swing Can I strain for a metaphor here to, to try to, to absolutely is it sounds like what you're saying is that like revolver is like that that um classic like star wars toy that you have to keep in the box and it's like this is this is great this is perfect and it's like over here on the shelf and aftermath is the toy that it's not maybe it's not as valuable maybe it's not as pristine but you can like take it down and play with it and it's fun and it's like there with you does that make is that is that, that is, too strained of that, a metaphor no that is absolutely perfect and that's literally the case here i mean you know because between the alternate versions the tracks that weren't put out until the next year on the flowers album and then the tracks that didn't come out at all there's just so much to play with and the beatles are so neat and perfectly contained there are no wasted tracks from the revolver sessions everything they cut boom they put out um yeah and it's this perfect gem and I love to listen to it and I've spent hundreds of hours listening to it, but the stones, I, I just have to get in there and shuffle the or the playing order and, and take, take things out and add things in, you know, recently, and this hurt me. I had to take stupid girl off the playlist because my <laughs> daughter pipes up, you know, I think she was four or five at the time. And she's like, what's this song? And I'm like, deleted. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> not, even, just, not even going to try to explain around that one. No, it's just indefensible bullshit. And I don't want it in my daughter's head, you know? Um, and I mean, that, you know, there's a whole argument. Oh, they were talking about some women, not all women. Uh -huh. Obviously, plenty of women are stupid and plenty of women are brilliant. But the net effect is dudes calling all women stupid, you know? And, and so not something I want to play for my daughter. Um, well, as someone with a about three month old daughter, it's good to know that I have a solid three or four years left to listen to stupid girl. 
yeah so with the stones it's it's the interactivity and it's the obsession just with brian jones and what did he play exactly because because it was more than just adding color to instruments mm -hmm. like i think under my thumb he basically wrote the song that riff is what the song is mm -hmm. you know and it's possible that he wrote the melody for paint it black too mick frequently rides the same melody line as what brian's playing and from the sessions I've seen, it seems like Brian starts playing that part before Mick adds the melody line. So mm. Mm. I don't know. That's I don't know. Fascinating. You know? Well, okay. That was that was a shock. That was a shocker to me. I did not think that was where you're going. Um, Nate, thank you so much for 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 chiming in on this. Um, My pleasure. Everyone, go check it out. The Let It Roll podcast. Um, and we will uh, maybe maybe we will uh, bounce into you again, Mr. Wilcox. Anytime, man, let me know. All right, great. I've got a feeling. It starts with Rubber Soul a little bit, but I feel like this is where the Beatles rhythm section like really comes into their own and really starts putting like prior to Rubber Soul that they are like good to passable. And I feel like this is where Paul McCartney starts to really become like one of the greatest bass players of all time. And also, I mean, we were like kind of making fun of Taxman earlier, but it is a, a masterclass of sort of bass and drum rhythm that's sort of off kilter and different and just interesting to listen to if you spend some time listening to that part of it and so that's something i really love about revolvers paul mccartney's bass playing is 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 really cool and really different um and, and i think can can kind of match some of the the musical virtuosic fireworks of brian jones on, on some of those better songs The bass on Aftermath kills too. It's the the bass line on under under my thumb is so good. Maybe it's just a good year for the old bass guitar. That that was it was a primo bass guitar year. Um, do you want to talk about Got Live if you want it? <laughs> yeah, so Got Live if you want it, like. Uh, Ryan shared that like, oh no, it's not just Aftermath and uh, um, Revolver this year. The, the Rolling Stones have a live album, Got Live If You Want It. And I was like, oh, never heard of that. I guess I'll take a look for it. And then I eventually remembered this. I have I own like a scattered set of record, like vinyl records from the Beatles and Rolling Stones. Like I have the White Album. It's really jacked up though. I have like a, a Greatest Hits Beatles one, the Anthology 2. And then uh, I have this one live Rolling Stones album that I never kind of, I got it for like 99 cents and never, I didn't know exactly what it was. I'd never heard of it. And honestly, it sounds, it's a mess. Like in its, its sound is just, the crowd is really loud. It just feels, it, you know what? It's not a mess. Cause I listened back again now, like for this, this process of knowing I was going to defend them. But I mean, it's a weird mix. And if you come into it with mess. no context, if you come into it with no context, it's like, dude this is too this is hectic and like i just assumed i had like a knockoff record or something i thought that was funny that you were like i listened to it and it sounds kind of not great my my copy must not be good and my sort of takeover was like no that's what it sounds like um <laughs> but even with that like the a the just i i don't know whoever recorded it um or whoever set up the the, the equipment to record it just did not do a great job I 
stop now When you have all of those studio dynamics, they're not, you know, they're not bringing a marimba in for one song yeah. to play live. And there's something you lose in the process of doing that. All that being said, you can still tell that they are kicking fucking ass. In my mind, I just got a, a visual image of Mick just kicking people in the face in the front row. And they're just like, yes, please kick me in the face again. It, this is the album that we wanted in 1966. It has all the hits. Yeah. I think I think like we hear all this stuff about how the Beatles touring thing comes to an end in part because like they essentially can't hear themselves. The crowd is just absolutely losing its shit. And I think that like between the technology not being as good for for live recording and just how rabid these fans were, you can imagine that that's true about the Rolling Stones as well, but it's a little more notorious and famous for the Beatles. But I think that like this crowd is endlessly just losing their minds and you're in a room with a lot of energy and it's real jacked up and you got to compensate for volume. You could see how, all right, we're going to play everything just a little faster, a little yeah. more nutty, or everything's going to be screamed. And honestly, all the songs just sound like kind of rushed and, and mm. like loosely hung together because I think in parks, it's just like, there's a bunch of maniacs here and we got to play over. My thought when listening to it was like, this is kind of punk as fuck. Like, yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it's super fast. Everything is just like crunched up, which again is probably partly the recording, partly their equipment. And it's nice to have that time capsule to be like, yeah, you can really hear the people screaming. But after a song or two, you're like, shut the fuck up, just yeah. stop. I want to listen to the song. I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been uh, to be a, a fan who wasn't a teenage girl to be like, well, you guys sh shut the fuck up, please. So, all right. So in, in the face of such a, a significant challenge, the Rolling Stones go on to do it for 50 more years. And in 1966, the Beatles decide they're not going to tour anymore. Defend that. Def I mean, I don't know if there's anything to, f I, I have no interest in seeing old man rivers, uh, the Rolling Stones, like, have you have you have you a have you been to a Rolling Stones concert like in your lifetime? I'm gonna or, let like, you. I'm gonna let you tell me if this counts, okay? So okay. So I went to a friend's house in Sausalito, California, whose dad had a sailboat, and the Rolling Stones were playing a live show at the um, Pac Bell Park or whatever, where they're, wherever the San Francisco Giants play. And so they have like a thing outside there called McCovey Cove, where like Barry Bonds would hit all his home runs into the water. Mm -hmm. And so the Rolling Stones are playing there. They're playing in center field, and there's like a big screen. There's like a, a big monitor screen there. And so we took it was Rolling Stones headlining, and then the opening act was Metallica. And so we so we get on the sailboat, we go out there, anchor the sailboat, and basically spent five hours like out in McCovey Cove getting drunk and watching listening like seeing the screen and then hearing at like a real loud volume but at the kind of volume where you could still kind of just talk to each other it was awesome and what was funny about it is why like, would that not count that sounds like a quintessential rolling stones concert experience i like, guess you're right i mean i didn't i saw them on a screen you know i didn't see them and but it was happening live and it i could hear it well and it was fun 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it can, it's like a super unique experience. The funny, the funny addition to that is that like, all right, Metallica's opening, then the Rolling Stones. But as we pulled the boat up during like the daylight hours before, like I was like, oh, I hear some music right now. What's this? And then you realize it's like it was <laughs> Everclear singing Santa Monica. Uh, Everclear, Everclear. Oh. Hey, bro, we don't slander Everclear on this podcast. I okay, I, I'm not slandering. I'm just, uh, I, I just ate something strange. Okay. Um, I, I, so I mean, that really, like, you just so summed up the whole thing. And to me, it's, it's very much to the Beatles' credit that they're like, nah, fuck this. It's the sort of Jimi Hendrix experience, if you will, of the Beatles didn't necessarily die young but their sort of live career died young and to me it's awful seeing those old dudes to me it may as well be a cover band um and you know i i think the the main experience that i've had with something like this other than watching youtube videos is i saw the band x uh, from los angeles play in dallas like 10 years ago and they are one of the greatest punk bands of all time one of my favorite bands they sounded great they they played the songs perfectly um and it was just super fucking weird to see a bunch of 60 year old people i i just think that like rock and roll music is like young people's music it's like a young people's game and i think it's to the beatles credit yeah i'll never i'll never this moment in college when i was getting really into the rolling stones like i got i got real deep more into stuff that came later than this obviously but um I was getting really into it. And my buddy Fernando was too. And I think we were talking to my brother and kind of like, we were talking about how much we like these songs. Like around that time, I was getting really into Van Morrison, Elton John. I, I was basically like paying uh, $24 for a CD at, at Barnes and Noble. Shit like that. It was, <laughs> it was that period where you were like, I'm, I'm, it was like, no. These CDs I, are going to be I, worth something one day. No, it was like, I did that for about a year using like tip money as a bellhop. And then it was like, there's a racket happening here. And I'm, it was good. It was really good for exploring a lot of this music though, but like super into Rolling Stones. And I remember going to a friend's house to watch the Super Bowl, like a group of people. It was like a party, barbecuing, everything, watching the Super Bowl. <laughs> Rolling Stones are playing the halftime show. Just hilarious. Like there was this period of like, classic rock bands playing all the halftime shows for like 10 years oh, yeah. after mm-hmm. after janet jackson's boob came out like they, right. they couldn't risk uh offending anyone and uh it was so bad and all i remember is i'm sitting there i'm watching it i'm drinking a beer i'm just staring at the tv thinking man this is rough and then i get my phone buzzes i take my like nokia out of my pocket and my and it's a text from my brother that just says how do you feel about your beloved stones now Oh, this was so funny to me. Hung that shit around your neck. (laughs) It was so funny to me because, like, my brother's not even the type to really be watching the Super Bowl. He had neutral feelings about the Rolling Stones, but it just was like, yeah, this ain't good. But that said, you know what I would say, kind of confidently, is that the Rolling Stones. I mean, Rolling Stones at their peak, right at this time with uh, this live album that came out this year and the years ahead. I think that was that's way more part of who they are. And like, I don't think that the Rolling Stones could do what the Beatles did. Like the, the, the Beatles stopped touring and it's all song craft from there. The Rolling Stones have a lot of song craft, but I think that like live energy attitude stuff was like core to who they are and they couldn't, that, that wasn't really an option even available to them. I think that that makes perfect sense. And it's, it, it just, it's like, yeah, the, they went their separate ways <laughs> as bands in, in a way. And um, 
I, I have respect for both. And I, I do have a respect for the Rolling Stones of just being like, yeah, this is our lifeblood. This is what we like to do. And you can't fucking tell us not to like, people are still paying $200 a ticket to come see a show. And we are still selling out arenas any place that we go. So why would we stop? And it's like, who am I to argue with that? I just would not go. And I prefer to have like a pristine image of like the Fab Four playing playing at um, Mets Stadium and, and like that being like the last thing and, and the last sort of image of, of them as a live band. Or I guess you could also include the, you know, rooftop. The thing is, the albums that the Rolling Stones put out in the next few years are so solid and so live music friendly that, like, I'm sure that those shows, especially, like, into the early 70s, were some damn good stuff. I'll say this. The Beatles never got anyone killed at their shows. (laughs) True. That we know of. (laughs) Something I want to do, something I want to do, like when we get to like White Album, and I can't remember what year Altamont was, but I think it's around the similar time, is uh, examine which band has like a bigger body count on them for like like the Beatles writing Helter Skelter and like Charles Manson and then Altamont. So we'll get into that. We'll go. Are you including uh, like John Lennon being murdered as like his fault? Absolutely not. I'm not. Are we blaming Holden? Are we blaming JD Salinger for that one? Let's let's save it. We'll get there. Well, I think we've I think we've pretty well tackled 1966. I want to so. do want to add one last very minor detail that I have to mention, which is on that live album, is that I love that they play the last time and the 19 Nervous Breakdown back to back because that's how I hear those songs in my head, and it's frustrating to me that they are not on an album like that. And so seeing that they did it, that they performed that way live is like very a great justification to me like yes those two songs go together they are like a pair and they should be like paired together my little final final punctuation mark on this is so I edit these, and as I've edited these, I have to say, like, the amount of times that you and I have referred to Mick Jagger as sexy and and called him sexy is really, uh, I think we got a little thing for Mick Jagger. I mean, I, I absolutely have a thing for Mick Jagger, and if you also want to have a thing for Mick Jagger, go on YouTube and watch the Rolling Stones playing on um, the Ed Sullivan show, playing Time is on My Side, and you, I mean... <laughs> An interesting thing about being our age and interacting with the Rolling Stones and like you talking about buying their CDs at Barnes and Noble and such a funny kind of idea, like compared to the sort of street scene that's being painted in these early albums or whatever. Um, but like as a kid growing up the Rolling Stones, I knew those songs, but I also just knew them as kind of geriatric, right? And so I, di- I wouldn't have ever thought of Mick Jagger as sexy. And it's not until I've gotten older and, and really listen to these songs and then like, watch those it was like yeah, this man's sex appeal was off the charts it's true he's so sexy that he deflects from brian jones weird blonde haircut <laughs> and it and then you juxtapose it to to fucking bow-legged ass john lennon 
who just looks so uncomfortable on on stage to me and like he looks like he should be sitting in a chair whenever he's he's playing music um that then i mick jagger is some kind of platonic idea of a rock star but an interesting difference is the the sort of front man not holding an instrument thing that Mick Jagger has and none of the Beatles have that. The, the Beatles are more of a, I'd say there's like a Lennon McCartney tier and then it's the rest of the whole band after that. But like, there's, there's not a central, uh, there, there's not a Mick Jagger there, you know? And that's what I was gonna say earlier when you're talking about why would they still be going out and playing shows versus the Beatles not is I, I I, my guess is that Mick is probably a driving force behind that in a lot of ways because it's not as much fun to be a performer and a front man if you're just like writing lyrics and singing into an album. Whereas those Beatles seemed content to be like noodling around on their guitars and playing around in the studio. This was fun. Um, where can people email if they want to reach the show? Yeah, they can email uh, Beatles versus Stones pod at gmail.com and we will read all of your emails, uh, not live on the podcast, but we will read them and interact with you if you have something interesting to say. Yeah, I got a, I got a fun message from a friend uh, who was mad that we couldn't remember John Bonham's name. In, <laughs> to which, which I say, fuck, fuck, fuck him, you. Fuck John Bonham. <laughs> <Yeah>. fuck you. <laughs> John Bonham, John Bonham's got enough praise. Uh, he's fine. He'll what did John fine. Bonham ever do to uh, for us? Slap those, slap those tom-toms with his hands and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, have t- ten minute long drum solos. John Bonham's amazing, just to be perfectly on the record. But uh, it's not what this podcast is about, so we'll forget no. his name as much as we want. Um, yeah, I'll forget anyone's name who I goddamn please. Um, and so you can next next year is going to be 1967. You can find me Justin on Twitter at Cox Justin, and um, 67, 68, 69, 70 are about to be pretty wild. I will represent the Beatles. You will represent the Rolling Stones. Um, I strolled through my local library the other day and picked up the Magical Mystery Tour DVD, so I will be uh, doing doing my. Uh, Can I borrow that? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, wait a second. Well, baby, baby.